Hi, I'm Jimmy Coe. And I'm Stephen Hawk. And we're the host of the Cosmic Sponge Podcast, where we explore the unknown from UFOs and cryptids to unexplained disappearances and ancient mysteries. If you're looking for strange stories that will keep you on the edge of your seat, jump on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or search for Cosmic Sponge on your favorite listening platform. Head on over to our website at www.cosmicsponge.com to get access to all of our content, including a full list of platforms where you can enjoy the show. Hi, Techie Joe here. I work with Ace and Knight and some of the best psychics in West Virginia to create amazing live streams and podcasts for the Psychic Coffee Shop Network. Together, we brew up great content discussing news, events, hot topics, and more, all from a psychic perspective. On the Psychic Coffee Shop, we interview amazing authors in the metaphysical realm. Coffee and Tea combines Asen with Tracy, Dottie, Natalie, or Lady Gwendolyn for the good and the bad of being a psychic. Shameless self-promotion with Dottie the Psychic talks to leading and emerging YouTubers and business owners in our community. Mountain Bears brings you the latest in LGBT news and politics. The Psychic That Plans answers the question of, well, how a psychic plans. Plus, we're live on air. We take your comments and your questions, including psychic advice questions. Check out our amazing programming, book an appointment with top psychics, and find out all the wonderful things we have to offer at PCSBnetwork.com today. American Metaphysical Religion, AMR for short, doesn't fit neatly within the categories that scholars attempt to place it in. Many argue that AMR isn't a real religion, but instead is an umbrella term for a collection of superstitions and beliefs. Others believe that AMR is a religion that only lacks a centralized unifying institution. Others believe that AMR, as a belief, is stronger due to that same lack of structure. To examine this idea further, we look to Imperial Rome. At that time, Christianity was a series of disparate beliefs with no central organizing body. There was no church, and there was no Bible. Some Christians worshipped Sophia, the embodiment of pious wisdom. Some were a part of Gnostic sects with their own set of Gospels. Some groups believed in reincarnation, while others believed that the earth was a testing ground for immortal souls. Eventually, these various cults became a force that would go on to shape the course of Western history. American metaphysics, as vague as that term may be, still today promotes optimism. Yes, this world can be hard, but it still contains untold beauty. We just have to look for it. Followers of AMR strive to make their surroundings better. Yes, this may be limited to making things better for themselves, their family, or their immediate community, but they still seek to improve on their circumstances. More than anything else, AMR practitioners are seekers. They seek out knowledge, understanding, and gnosis about all things, ranging from alchemy to mediumship to spiritualism. They have this drive to find and to share, sometimes for a nominal price. Tonight, we are going to delve into the book 
American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World, by Ronnie Pontiac. I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Before we get started tonight, I want to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive. Specifically, Soul Rising Studios, Grand Inquisitor Samantha, and Grand Inquisitor Annie Kay. Your contributions help pay server costs, purchase reading material, and... Shh. They're listening. They're always listening. The trees have ears. So thanks once again to the contributing members of the Esoteric Archive. Now, let's get weird. If you're anything like me, I had to Google who Ronnie Pontiac was. Granted, I'm not big into punk music, otherwise I may have heard of him. He worked as Manly P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for seven years. He's an award-winning documentary producer, professional bass player, and an author. Coincidentally, if you're into punk music, check out the band Lucid Nation. Personally, I'm a fan of the song Night Prowler, although all of the songs that are on Spotify are all really rather good. For some of you, I imagine the follow-up question would be, Who's Manly P. Hall? Hall wrote over 150 books on philosophy, mysticism, astrology, metaphysics, and esotericism. The guy kept busy. He is best known for the book The Secret Teachings of All Ages. He was also the founder of the Philosophical Research Society of Los Angeles, all the way back in 1934. It was dedicated to the study of religion, mythology, metaphysics, and the occult. He was both a Freemason and a member of the Scottish Rite. Most notably, he achieved the 33rd degree, the second highest rank available in all of Freemasonry. And finally, to put this all in perspective, Manly P. Hall was born in 1901 and died in 1990. With all of that in mind, I'm rather surprised that it took this long for Ronnie Pontiac to release a book. Now this book was released in 2023, but by the time this recording is live, Ronnie will have released a second book, his version of the Orphic Hymns, a series of religious poems originally released in the Hellenistic era. Now, the book American Metaphysical Religion has a little bit of a backstory. It all began when Pontiac was in a library with Manly P. Hall. Hall was otherwise occupied, so Pontiac decided to search through the stacks. That's when he was given a giant leather-bound volume. 
Inside of that volume, he found The Platonist, a newspaper printed in St. Louis from 1881. Now, The Platonist, as the name suggests, is a newspaper dedicated to philosophy and metaphysics. A very strange series of topics for an industrial city at the turn of the 20th century. Finding this giant-bound volume, Pontiac was inspired in a giant research project. A project that begins with a very simple question. Why? Why, of all places, was this newspaper being printed in the post-Civil War Midwest? It really just didn't make any sense. The answer was far more involved and way, way older than anyone could have guessed. Before we can get to the answer, we have to take a look at American mythology. We have been sold on this idea that America was founded by people who were fleeing religious persecution. And they were. But that's only a small part of the story. A very, very small part. What most people don't realize is that in addition to all these Christian asylum seekers, there were mystics, alchemists, and esotericists. Not everybody who came to the New World was a Puritan. Before we go any farther, let's take a moment to explain exactly what American metaphysical religion is. It's a relatively new term. It's a conglomeration of beliefs, religion, alchemy, magic. It's kind of a melting pot, for lack of a better term. What's interesting is that sometimes there are conflicting beliefs within this metaphysical structure. For example, some groups could think that divination is evil, but they would conversely be okay with astrology. That's what makes this so hard to define. There's no singular cohesive system. There's no collection of, of unified beliefs or practices. Much like America itself, it's a sum of its diverse parts. And really, it's that diversity that is causing it to still be debated today. Is this really a religion? Because, you know, it's not unified. But at this point, it doesn't really matter. Because this collection of beliefs is older than the United States. In fact, it's older than America itself. When we look around today, we see that individual spirituality is on the rise. And yet, participation in organized religion is on a sharp decline. So, American metaphysical religion may not look like everyone's traditional view of religion, but it is a deeply held set of spiritual beliefs that helps to shape the lives of millions of people around the globe today, regardless of whether or not it would be defined as a religion. Now that we have a vague understanding of what American metaphysical religion is, let's begin our story. It all begins on Turtle Island. 
Turtle Island is the term that indigenous Americans gave to the continent of North America. Before European contact, there were thousands and thousands of individual tribes and nations on this continent. In places, there were massive city-states. There were trade routes that zigzagged across the continent, trade routes that would rival the Silk Road. And there was a multitude of religious beliefs and practices. But when Europeans first set foot on Turtle Island, they unwittingly sealed the fate of millions of its inhabitants. When the first explorers landed in New England, they commented on how peaceful it was. What they didn't realize is that the woodlands around them were just one big graveyard. Now, the indigenous tribes who made first contact with the Puritans suffice to say they were a little confused by their religious practices. For example, when Puritans would pray, they would look to the sky. In return, the natives would scratch their heads, look at them, and ask, So, are you praying to the sun or to the moon? I just want to take a moment to make it very clear that the indigenous Americans were not ignorant. They didn't actually think the Puritans were worshipping the sun or the moon. This was largely just one big bit of ironic humor. And as you will soon hear, the Puritans did not treat their indigenous neighbors very well. So making them the butt of the jokes? Yeah, that's probably par for the course. Unfortunately, a lot of the early settlers in America were, for lack of a better term, religious zealots. Rather than lead by example, these religious fanatics would, more often than not, enforce their religious beliefs at the tip of a sword. That said, there were a few exceptions. One such individual was Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island. Now, Williams, he was still a Puritan, but he was a bit of an oddball. He had the outrageous belief that the government shouldn't be able to force its religious views upon the populace. Weird, huh? Needless to say, this did not make him popular amongst the other Puritans. The Puritan leadership came here to establish a theocracy. So William's beliefs weren't just unpopular. They were blasphemy. Now in the book, it says that the authorities showed up at Williams's apartment in Boston. More than likely, this was an angry mob led by some of the Puritan elite. The mob had confiscated all of Williams's writings and burned them in the street. They didn't exactly arrest him, though. In all fairness, he was in a small village on the edge of the wilderness. So, really, where was he going to go? Even though he hadn't been arrested, Williams was still facing trial. So he did what any sane person at that time would do. He left. To most sane Puritans, they would assume that Williams had nowhere to go. But Williams was different. 
he wasn't exactly like the rest of the Puritans. He actually got along with the native tribes of the area. In fact, it seems that the native tribes actually had a rather high opinion of Williams, because he was able to negotiate land for a new settlement. This new colony would eventually be called Providence. Because Williams espoused actual freedom of religion and not freedom for Puritan religion, he was not well liked by the surrounding colonies. For 30 years, the colonies of Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Plymouth tried to destroy Providence. Williams spent that time better acquainting himself with his only allies, the Narragansett. This eventually culminated in a book entitled A Key into the Language of America. Now this book was a huge hit in Europe. Because he spent so much time with the tribe, he was better able to understand their belief system. Enough so that he actually stopped trying to convert them to Christianity. Don't mistake this for sympathy, though. Williams was still a Puritan. He still felt that any religious belief that wasn't his own was satanic. But, in all fairness, he also felt that way about other Christian denominations. Now, the popularity of his book actually helped him secure the future for what would later become Rhode Island. You see, Providence had actual, real religious freedom. And as a result, other small communities began to pop up around it. The area became a haven for Jews. Quakers, and Baptists. As the colony expanded outwards, it became harder and harder for the Puritans to attack. Through the combined efforts of both the popularity of the colony and of the popularity of Williams's book, Providence eventually got a charter and became Rhode Island. All good stories need a villain. Based on what I just told you, I'm sure you can guess who that villain ultimately is going to be. Most Americans over a certain age, we've grown up with stories of the brave intrepid pilgrims coming to the new world to establish religious freedom. Well, it turns out that those pilgrims were a bunch of huge assholes. There's this stereotype of a religious fanatic who thinks that literally everything that happens in this world is the result of the devil. That stereotype comes from the Puritans. Puritan beliefs were so strict that they thought walking too fast was evil. Dancing? That is right out. That is Satan tempting you right there. Laughter? That's Beelzebub. Nope, can't do that. Puppies? Well, honestly, I'm not sure about their stance on puppies, but considering how frequently they were starving, I'm sure they probably ate one or two. Oh, and the final nail in their coffin? They were one of, if not the first, to establish the Atlantic slave trade in the English colonies. 
they were the Karens of the early colonial era. Seriously, they even tried to shut down a neighboring colony's party because it was too diverse. Now that we have a villain, it's time to meet our hero. Our hero is a cavalier. Now, cavalier is a term that comes from Latin meaning a horseman. It's basically a generic term for nobility. But specifically in this example, cavaliers are those who supported Charles I during the English Civil War. So what makes the cavaliers the enemies of the Puritans? Well, the cavaliers know how to have fun. Whereas the Puritans were clean-shaven with short hair, the cavaliers had long flowing locks. They had mustaches and sharply pointed goatees. Where the Puritans wore modest clothing colored only in black, the cavaliers they had gaudy flowing clothes, big hats, and more importantly, decorative cod pieces. That's right, the cavaliers bedazzled their junk. Now, do you remember how I mentioned the Puritans basically outlawed any source of fun? That was in direct response to the cavaliers. The cavaliers, they loved carousing. Ah, who am I kidding? They liked going out drinking and whoring. Imagine a college campus full of dude bros from fraternities, and then the incoming freshman class is full of angsty goth kids. And then the class after that has more angsty goths. And the one after that. That gives you a basic understanding of what the atmosphere was like at that time period. The hero of our story is a retired dude bro. He was born into middle-class gentry. Nothing too obscenely wealthy, but still pretty well-connected. Thomas Morton grew up learning philosophy, dance, horsemanship, swordsmanship, poetry, falconry, you know, all the fun stuff. Morton got to enjoy all the extravagance of the Elizabethan age. But then he also watched it all go to shit once she passed away. He was also around for Guy Fawkes' gunpowder treason and plot. Conversely, he also got to see the first of Shakespeare's plays. Now, at this time, Tom was still a pretty mundane dude. He was a lawyer by trade. He did his job. He went home to his wife and stepchildren. He was ultimately pretty boring. That said, his stepchildren really kind of hated him. Enough so that the eldest child took Tom to court over his mother's inheritance. While she was still alive, no less. In the early 1620s, Thomas became a shareholder in a company that was sending colonists to the New World. By 1622, Thomas himself made a trip across the Atlantic, where he stayed for three months, and then returned to England absolutely raving about how nice America was. He also complained nonstop about how insufferable the Puritans were. 
Remember how I said that Morton was a cavalier? They spent a lot of time in bars and brothels, so raunchy poetry and songs would not be unfamiliar to them. In fact, Morton fancied himself a bit of a poet. Upon his return, he penned the following, which in my head I can only ever hear read by George Takei. You'll understand soon. License my roving hands, and let them go before, behind, between, above, below. Oh my, America! This gives you a glimpse at Thomas Morton's flamboyance, and ultimately why the Puritans absolutely hated this man. For Morton's return journey, he was given charge of 30 indentured servants, and he boarded the ship named Unity. There's a little bit of subtle irony in that name, considering how much discord he was going to sow in the New World when he actually landed. Don't get me wrong, Thomas Morton did bring a lot of unity to a lot of people. Just not to the Puritans. At the age of 48... Morton landed in the New World and almost immediately began to trade guns and knives to the native population. Obviously, this is going to upset the Puritans. Now, Morton said that he did this because he was trying to support the local native population. In all fairness, these tribes were considerably smaller than their neighbors. When it's all said and done, this greatly helped Morton to ingratiate himself with the local population. Now, soon after their arrival, Thomas caught the ship captain selling his indentured servants into full-blown slavery. When Morton couldn't talk him out of this, he instead led a full-blown rebellion, which resulted in all the indentured servants being freed. He immediately took command of the settlement and renamed it Marymount. He says the name was inspired by the local indigenous dialect, but he was also fully aware of all the dick jokes that he could make using that name. In fact, Marymount was Latin slang for an erection, which Morton emphasized during his May Day celebration when he cut down an entire pine tree to make a maypole. And yes, he erected this in full view of the neighboring Puritan settlement. During the 1627 May Day celebration, Morton invited literally everyone to the party. There were natives, trappers, traders. Hell, there were even pirates in attendance. This party went over exactly how you would expect. Everybody in attendance loved it. The Puritans, on the other hand, absolutely hated it. After several days of incessant partying, the Puritans sent Morton a strongly worded letter. In that same letter, they brought up their issue with him trading with the local natives. Morton's succinct reply was, The king is dead, and his ban on trade with him. 
By this time, the Puritans are absolutely enraged. They mount a two-pronged attack. The first prong was continued, strictly worded letters. Only this time they sent them back to England as well. The second part of their plan was, well, mob justice. Captain Miles Standish formed a posse and went to Marymount to arrest Tom Morton. They took him back to Plymouth and secured him in a cabin. Only, they must not have secured him very well because Morton very simply walked out the front door and into the swamps. Despite all their bluster, the Puritans were absolutely terrified of the surrounding wilderness, so they chose not to chase Morton. Besides, they knew where he was going. The very next day, they returned to Marymount, where they found Morton barricaded drunkenly in a cabin. He negotiated the terms of his surrender with Captain Standish, whom he called Captain Shrimp, and got them to agree not to harm anyone else in the cabin if he surrendered peacefully, to which they heartily agreed. Here's the problem, though. Puritans don't believe that they have to follow through on a promise if it's made to a sinner. And at this time, Thomas Morton was the biggest sinner that they knew. As soon as he left the cabin, the Puritans attacked. Apparently, they attacked with such violence and ferocity that a war veteran who was standing nearby was so appalled that he stepped in to prevent Morton from being killed. It seems that the Puritans were ready to beat him to death on the spot. Fast forward a little bit, and Captain Shrimp, I mean Captain Standish, delivered an enraged, impassioned speech to the leadership of the Pilgrims. He demanded the immediate execution of Thomas Morton. The problem that arose is that the Pilgrim leadership was fully aware of how well-connected Thomas Morton was to the aristocracy back in England. While they were across the ocean in a completely different land, it still had an impact on the Plymouth colony. In the end, cooler heads prevailed, and they decided to send Morton back to England for trial. But wait, there's more. There weren't exactly any ships scheduled to land in Plymouth that summer. So what do they do with Morton? Last time they tried to lock him up, he literally just walked out the front door and went back to Marymount. They decided to place him somewhere that he couldn't simply walk away from. An island. So the God-fearing Puritans rode him out to an abandoned island offshore left him with a bottle of wine and a few raisins, and marooned him there for the entire summer. You may be asking yourself about the bottle of wine and the handful of raisins. Basically, those were the Puritans' version of plausible deniability. So if Morton actually died on that island, they could always say, well, we did provide for him. It's his own fault that he didn't ration the items that we gave him. Much to their chagrin, Morton did survive his time on that island. Granted, it wasn't by eating raisins. 
All of that goodwill that he had generated with the local tribes inspired them to row out to the island and bring him supplies. They weren't inspired enough to help him escape, though. This argument went way beyond a petty dispute, and the tribes decided that it's not something that they should personally be involved in. Besides, they didn't want to incur the wrath of Captain Shrimp. Eventually, Thomas Morton was shipped back to London in chains. Unfortunately, the Puritans had overlooked one key aspect of Thomas Morton's early life. He was a lawyer, and a damned good one. In fact, the case against him never went to trial. More importantly, an official letter was sent back to the Plymouth Colony. Basically, a cease and desist letter. They were officially ordered by the Crown to stop harassing Thomas Morton. Now you're going to have to grab this book for yourself to find out exactly how badly that actually went. There's a bit more to this story, and Morton did in fact return to the New World, where he continued to be a thorn in the side of the Puritans for the remainder of his life. But I'll leave that for you to discover on your own. For our final story of the night, we're going to jump forward to the mid-1800s, to post-Civil War America. Our subject is named Victoria Woodhall. To say that Victoria had a terrible home life growing up would be quite an understatement. Apparently her father was abusive in every single way imaginable. It was pretty abysmal. In addition to the abuse, Victoria's father forced her and her sister to participate in a traveling wellness show. Victoria and her sister would perform medical mediumship, while their father would peddle snake oil at the cost of $2 per bottle. Just out of curiosity, I converted that to today's money, and it's roughly $78 per bottle. Now that doesn't seem too exorbitant, until you realize that this is basically the equivalent of a traveling farmer's market. This was also the time period where you would go to the barber when you had a toothache, so medical technology wasn't exactly at its peak. By the age of 15, Victoria was already married. On paper, it seemed like a good marriage. She managed to marry a doctor, after all. Unfortunately, that doctor was addicted to his own pain medicine. He was also an insufferable drunk and frequented the whorehouses. His addiction is blamed for the severe brain damage of their first child, and the near death of their second when he showed up to the delivery room completely wasted. And of course, he insisted on being the delivering doctor. That act of negligence was the final straw for Woodhull, and she did something that was unheard of for that time period. She divorced her husband. Leaving her children to be raised by another family, Victoria moved back in with her sister. The two began touring the country, once again applying their skills as spiritual healers. But it was her abilities as a spirit medium that earned her the respect of Cornelius Vanderbilt. Yes, that Vanderbilt. It was this notoriety that allowed her to become a stockbroker. In fact, she was the first female stockbroker in America. 
Using the wealth that she gained as a stockbroker, Victoria went on to open her own muckraking newspaper. Now, she gained her wealth by ingratiating herself with the upper class of New York, so opening this newspaper really did not win her any favors. But when you combine the income that she gained from stock trading and from the newspaper, Victoria had achieved her goal. She was fully financially independent. Using her newfound wealth, Victoria once again began to travel the country. Only this time, instead of spreading spiritual mediumship, she was advocating for free love. Now, this isn't the type of free love that you think of with the 1960s. This was a little bit more subdued, but for the time period, no less controversial. What Woodhall was advocating was the idea that marriage should not be entered into as a financial arrangement. It was not something that you did for social standing. It was something that should be entered into because of mutual affection for your partner. In hindsight, this doesn't sound too outrageous, but she continued to expand upon her ideas. She said that in the future, spiritual marriages with discarnate entities would be possible. That's right. She was predicting ghost marriages. At least I hope she was talking about ghost marriages. If she's talking about, like, angels and demons, that would just really be weird. Because she was already advocating for a bit more equality in the marriage, she also was turned on to the woman's suffrage movement. Now, this was fairly early on in the campaign, so Woodhull took a short break and ran for president of the United States. There were a few problems with this, the first of which, Woodhull was only 35 years old when she put her name on the ballot, five years too young to even run for president. Hey, postscript editing Jason here. I had to go back and research this a bit. I'm not sure why it's listed in this book that 35 isn't old enough to run for president of the United States. In fact, 35 years old is the minimum age to run for president. There's a good chance that this may just be a typo. Anyway, back to the show. The next problem that she ran into is that she named Frederick Douglass as her running mate. While that would be incredibly controversial for the time, that's not what the problem was. The problem is that she didn't ask Douglass first. In fact, it's unclear whether he even knew that his name was being used or not. If he did know, he certainly wasn't acknowledging it. When it was all said and done, this entire presidential run turned into one big debacle, and Victoria Woodhull was not even on the ballot when election time came around. This drew a lot of unwanted attention to the women's suffrage movement, and Woodhull was kind of kicked out. Susan B. Anthony herself had very few kind words to say about the woman. After her failed presidential run, Woodhull focused more of her effort on her newspaper, much to her own detriment. Her investigations uncovered an adultery scandal involving a local preacher. Unfortunately, that local preacher was also the brother of famed author Harriet Beecher Stowe, who had a best-selling novel at the time. 
After that, she exposed a Wall Street trader who was, well, he was getting teenage girls drunk so that he could take advantage of them. Which ended with Woodhall getting sued. That last one landed both Victoria and her sister in jail. Ultimately, the pair was found not guilty, but not before the details of Victoria's personal life were made public. During the trial, it was revealed that Victoria Woodhall, newspaper publisher, stockbroker, and spiritualist medium, was living in the same house as her ex-husband, her current husband, and her lover. That's when Victoria's life completely collapsed around her. She was financially ruined by defending herself in court, and then that's when the lawsuits really began to roll in. Things got so bad that her own mother arranged for her to have an exorcism. It was all just getting to be too much, so Victoria Woodhull divorced her second husband and left the country. She went on to establish an entirely new life in the United Kingdom, where she married an English lord. With her newfound wealth, she became known as both a collector and a philanthropist. When World War I broke out, Victoria Woodhall, now in her 70s, volunteered for the Red Cross. When she finally passed away, Victoria was praised for her generosity. But no one who attended the funeral knew about her scandalous past in America. What you just heard were only three stories out of this 598-page book. Most of these stories are about people that have otherwise been overlooked in American history, but they've all made a very significant impact on where we are today. They just don't fit in with the mythology of a puritanical America. This is the real America, the melting pot. One thing you'll notice reading this book is you'll see that strict conservatism and borderline fascism has always been a part of this country. But for every Captain Shrimp that pops up, there's also a Thomas Morton. So while a lot of these ideas and ideals have been suppressed at the point of a gun or the tip of a sword, they're still around. If you like what you just heard, grab yourself a copy of American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World by Ronnie Pontiac. I'll post a link in the show notes. Thanks again to the members of the Esoteric Archive. If you like what you just heard, please consider leaving me a review or possibly even joining the Esoteric Archive yourself. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and now on Threads. I'm still testing the waters on that platform. There's not a ton of engagement, but it seems to be much easier to gain followers, so who knows. So until next time, remember, keep it weird.
to open the esoteric archive. Over the past few days, I've had a lot of people asking me about my opinions on the UAP hearings in the U.S. Congress. Now, I may not personally like our governor, Jim Justice, but he does have a very useful phrase for times such as this. I find the UAP hearings to be one big nothing burger. Hey everyone, Natalie here from the Pendulum's Path. If you need guidance, direction, spiritual connection, or more, then listen up. I have worked as a psychic and a medium for over three years, connecting people from all over the world with their loved ones in spirit, giving them insight and guidance into their current situations, the past healings that need to be worked on, and what it is they need to know today in order to have a better future. It would be my absolute honor if you would visit my website at www.thependulumspath.com. I also offer emailed readings for those with busy schedules too. Also, for you goblins who subscribe to the Esoteric Book Club, I have a special coupon code just for you. Enter the code STAYWEIRD to get $5 off of any order of $25 or more. Hope to see you there.